All right, so as we were going through it through apologetics, one of our guiding verses is uh, 1 Peter 3.15. So I just want to kind of uh, review that verse again. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, so that's been one of our guiding verses when we look at apologetics, that we want to be ready to give an answer to those who are asking, why do we have the hope that we have? But also that as we interact with people, that we would do so with gentleness and respect. All right? And that's sometimes hard when the other person isn't always being gentle and respectful themselves. Uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's what we are held to uh, by the word of God. And so what we're looking at here is some, some objections that people might come at us with um, about what we believe. And then how do we answer that? And the one we're looking at today is the problem of evil. Because the presence of evil in the world is often used as an argument against God. An argument that either there's no God, or if there is a God, that he's not good. John Frame calls this objection the most serious and cogent objection that unbelievers have brought against Christian theism. Greg Bonson calls it the most intense, pained, and persistent challenge which believers hear. And you may see it presented as, a, as an argument, as I put on your papers there, with some premises and conclusions. Here's basically how it's often put together in the form of an argument. And so it says this, premise number one. <clears throat> if God were all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. Second, if God were all good, he would desire to prevent evil. Therefore, the conclusion is, if God were both all-powerful and all-good, there would be no evil. But there is evil, therefore, there is no all-powerful, all-good God. That's basically the argument that is leveled by unbelievers, based on the existence of evil. It's not unusual for people who have gone through great hardships in life to deny the existence of God or to deny his goodness because of those hardships. But if you really look at it, they're ultimately questioning his goodness, not his existence. Uh, you hear when people say that often, anger in their denials. They're denying that God exists, yet they're doing it in an angry tone, which suggests that, no, they know that God exists, but they're angry because of their circumstances and they don't understand it. And we know that this is the case because Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows that God exists. So if you turn to Romans 1, a familiar passage, Romans 1, 18 to 20, reminds us that unbelievers are without excuse. They know that God exists. So Romans 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's intentional. They are suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is what they're suppressing, the truth that they see. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And it goes on to say, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what we see is that in reality, everybody knows God exists. So if the claim is that somebody's saying, I don't think God exists, 
That's actually not real. That's not the truth. The Bible tells us they actually know. They're denying that. So in the end, what you're really getting down to is they're truly questioning God's goodness when they're questioning the existence of evil. They know God exists. Actually, they know evil exists, right? They know God exists and they know evil exists. But they're either, they might be saying they're questioning God's existence. That's not really the case. They're ultimately questioning God's goodness. That's what's happening here. How could a good God allow evil and suffering? That's the question. As Bonson summarizes, why should there be so much misery? Why should it be distributed in such a seemingly unjust fashion? Is this what you would permit if you were God and could prevent it? Those are the kinds of questions that people are asking. Well, one solution is offered by what are sometimes called process theologians, process thinkers or process theologians. And they basically surrender to this argument that uh, that I put on your paper there. They surrender and agree that that argument is sound, which, by the way, we don't. But they surrender to that argument and they accept the final conclusion. So process theologians would say, you're right, you're right, you're right on all the premises and conclusions. And so ultimately they conclude the same thing. Therefore, there is no all-powerful, all-good God. But wanting to preserve the idea that they worship an all-good God, because these are claiming to be Christians, they concede that God must not be all-powerful. So these people are buying the argument that's given by the unbeliever, and they say, well, then that's true. By what they're saying here, we, we agree that there must not be an all-powerful, all-good God. But we believe that God is all good. So I guess he's not all powerful. That's what the process theologian would say. That's how they answer this. They say, yep, evil exists because God's not able to prevent it. So they compromise on God's omnipotence, on God's sovereignty and say, well, we're, we're, we're going to cling to the idea that God is good. But, we, but then we must say he must not be able to prevent evil. All right. Well, this is not an acceptable solution right it's not a real solution uh how do we know this well we just we go to the word of god and we see what the word of god says right and does the word of god say that can we conclude from the word of god that god is not powerful enough to stop evil okay so i'm actually want to start with i want to address that but before that i want to address one more thing i want to address that god is good so i'm going to show from scripture that god is good and then second that god is all-powerful which means something's wrong with the unbeliever's argument, right? So we're going to show that their argument isn't true because God is good and he is able to prevent evil. And yet he has chosen not to. Okay, so their argument's fallacious, but we'll get into why. So let's establish these two things first. We want to show that God is good and we want to show that God is all-powerful. So I've got a whole bunch of verses. I don't know that we're going to go through all of them. Um, God is good. And when, when I'm saying good here, we could include that God is righteous, God is just, God is, God is overflowing with loving kindness, and the word good is also used. So different, way, different things of looking at who God is and seeing that he is good. How about, uh, let's start in Exodus 33, 19. Exodus 33, 19. God says, this is when Moses wants to see God's glory. He says, please show me your glory in verse 18. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So he will make his goodness pass before 
Moses. And then he does show Moses in Exodus, uh, right before, in Exodus 34. And then he describes himself in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So we see he's merciful, he's gracious, he's abounding in faithful, loyal, steadfast love. And also, though, he's forgiving, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And so we see that he's also just. Okay, This is showing that he's, he's forgiving, but he's also just. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.4. I don't know, I might have added that one. It might not be on your paper. Deuteronomy 32.4, the song of Moses. And he speaks of the rock, God in, in uh, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. First uh, Chronicles 16.34. I'll just read some, some parts from these rather than turning there. First uh, Chronicles 16.34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 86, 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Uh, Psalm 106, 1, praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107, 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 135.3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Uh, Isaiah 61.8, for I, the Lord, love justice. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And there's many more. Uh, this is just you know, a sampling of some of the passages you could go through. Uh, but the point is, you know this, but just to go through and see from the scripture, God is good, righteous, just, holy, and perfect. Okay, so we know this. We know that God is good. Um, here's the second question. Is God all-powerful? Is he sovereign? Is he omnipotent? What does the scripture say? Is it possible that the process theologians are right and that somehow God couldn't prevent evil? I think you know the answer, but let's make sure that we're certain of God's sovereignty. Okay, so, so I put this under a few bullet points. The first one is, nothing is too hard or impossible for God. 
Okay, if we can look at some of these passages, Genesis 18, 14. This has to do with uh, Sarah having a baby at an old age. 18, 14. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, the Lord says. Right? And Sarah laughs, but the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And it's a rhetorical question, right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. How about Job 42.2? So this is part of, uh, we'll look a little bit more at Job later, but this is part of Job's uh, confession and repentance after God answers him, confronts him with questions. He says, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32.27. Jeremiah 32.27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Again, the answer is no. Um, quickly, Matthew 19.26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This has to do with saving uh, even rich people. Uh, uh, Luke one thirty seven for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So nothing is too hard, nothing is impossible for God, but there are things that God cannot do. So sometimes an unbeliever will come and give you some silly thing and be like, well, can God do this? And they'll prove that, well, we never claimed God can do anything. There are things God cannot do. He cannot do anything against his will or his attributes, right? He cannot lie. He cannot sin. So there are things God cannot do because of his nature. Uh, He cannot make an object that is too big for him to move. That's one where I've heard some unbelievers say, ha, I'm going to prove to you that God isn't so powerful. Can God make something so big that he can't move it? And it's like, that does, that's not, we're not saying God will, can do absolutely anything. There are things he won't do because of his will and his nature. So, yeah. Isn't it more true that in his absolute sovereignty and absolute power of all things, that he could very well make something he could not move? If he did that thing, he would then make himself. And so he would then make everything. But it would cease to be because he is through which all life exists. Well, I would just argue that it's not his will to do something like that. So it's, it's, it's a nonsensical argument. Yeah. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew write, In the history of thought, many have contended that God has absolute power in the sense that he's able to do anything, including sinning, suffering, dying, changing himself into a stone or an animal, changing bread into the body of Christ, making contradictory things, changing the past, making the true false or the false true. But his ability is confined to what he eternally wills to do. Okay, so when we say nothing is too hard or impossible for God, we're not talking about things like that. We're not talking about sin or doing things against his nature. Uh, but other than that, he can do whatever, he can do anything. Nothing's too hard. Okay, second point, God does whatever he pleases. And Job kind of pointed to this in the verse we looked at when he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But we have some other verses we can look at. Psalm 115.3, let's start there. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
Okay, then I got some passages. You all have been in Isaiah, so you've seen most of these passages. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. Isaiah 43, 13. Uh, And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? No one. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And then uh, I'll jump to Daniel four thirty-five. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, so we see God does what he pleases. That's point number two. All right, next, God is sovereign over Satan and evil. So I give a kind of a subheader. God uses evil people, nations, spirits, and acts for good, for his will. Uh, so we see uh, Genesis fifty twenty. That's a very well-known passage, right? Genesis fifty twenty is about uh, Joseph's brothers and the evil that they did to him, but how God used it for good. So Genesis fifty twenty says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he used the evil things that were done to Joseph to bring all of his family into Egypt to preserve them from the famine and to put them all together and start building the nation that would become Israel. Uh, Acts 2.23 talks about the ultimate evil, what was done to Christ that God used that, that was all according to his plan, and he used that uh, for good, to save people, right? To save sinners. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he used the ultimate evil there, what was done to his son for good. That was part of his plan. Um, we could look at Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? God promises that he uses all things together for good for those who love him, for those who, who are called according to his purpose. So for every believer, God uses everything, including evil things done to us for our good. And 29 tells us that that good is to be conformed to the image of his son. So in other words, God uses everything that happens to believers. And this is an amazing, unbelievable, crazy thing to, that... It's mind-blowing, like, how can he do that? But that's God's power. That's his sovereignty. He works all things so that everything that happens to believers ultimately helps them grow and become more like Christ. Notice, though, that doesn't take away the responsibility for the people that do the evil, right? God uses evil for good, but that doesn't mean that the people who are doing the evil are, you know, okay because of it, right? Just because it's used for good, they're still doing evil, Uh, We see some other examples. Um, In 1 Samuel 16, 
we see that uh, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so we see in this case with Saul that the Holy Spirit departed from him and God sent an evil spirit into Samuel to torment Samuel. So he used an evil spirit for his purposes. We see the same thing in Judges 9. Uh, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. This is the son of Gideon who murdered all the other uh, brothers. Um, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons uh, might come. So God sent an evil spirit and used, the evil spirit basically drummed up uh, treacherous dealings between them. God used that. Okay, another interesting situation. Uh, if you know the end of 2 Samuel, at the end of 2 Samuel, David does this census, right? David conducts the census, and it's a, it's a sinful act where he's not trusting the Lord, and he is trusting in the size of his troops, the might of his army instead of the Lord. 2 Samuel 24, 1 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel. Okay, so it says in 2 Samuel 24 that God incited David. But then it says, if you read in, in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So it seems that God used Satan to incite David here, just as he used those evil spirits in other situations. Uh, we don't have the time probably, but 1 Kings 22 with Micaiah. There's another story where, where God says, who will entice Ahab? And then a spirit comes forward and says, I will do it. And so the spirit is doing, and it's an evil spirit because he says, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets and will entice him. So God is using an evil spirit to judge Ahab. So that's evil spirits and Satan God uses. Uh, in Habakkuk, we have two passages I put down there from 1 and 2. Um, Habakkuk 1, 6 and 7, God talks about raising up the Chaldeans to judge um, to judge Israel. So he's raising up an evil people. He's using an evil nation to judge his people. So that's his sovereignty over nations. He's using evil nations, evil spirits. And then Habakkuk 2, he says, well, when, when he's questioned, well, how can you do that? How can you use a nation that's even more evil than, that is more evil than us to judge us? God says, well, they're going to be judged too. So he uses evil nations to judge and he still judges them for their evil. So again, they're responsible just because somebody, God uses the evil for good. The one who does the evil is still responsible for the evil. So he judges Babylon ultimately for that. Uh, then we also see in 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh that, uh, that Paul prays about. He prays for God to remove this thorn in the flesh three times. Uh, my understanding of this passage is that the thorn in the flesh is a person. Um, in fact, it's probably a demon-possessed person because I know some people think it's a sickness, but when you read through, it says a messenger. He says, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And messenger is usually a word that's used for an angel 
or a fallen angel. And so, so my understanding of this passage is that there was someone in the church who was acting as a messenger of Satan. They presumably had, a, had demon influence, and they were in the church tormenting Paul, speaking against Paul. Paul pleads for God to remove this person from the church, and God says no. Uh, why? Because God says that, that it, basically it's going to keep Paul humble. So here's an evil person doing evil things that God is using for good. This is Romans 8.28, right? He's using this good, this evil thing to do good in Paul's life, to keep him humble. So he's using evil to accomplish good. All right, so that's our point. God uses evil people, nations, spirits, and acts for good. And again, that's, that's the sovereignty that we're seeing. He has power over all of these things, and he can use them and does use them for good. Okay, another note. God hardens hearts in judgment. I'm not going to go through each of these. These are, these are actually all about Pharaoh. And if you, so if you read through, that's a lot of passages from Exodus. These are all about Pharaoh. And some of them say Pharaoh hardened his heart, and some of them say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we see that, again, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. Pharaoh is responsible. But in the end, God turns him over. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and judges him ultimately. So all of those passages show God hardens hearts in judgment. Uh, The next header, Satan can't harm without God allowing it. So I said we would go back to Job. Let's go to Job 1. So when people say God can't prevent it, you know, you see here that Satan needs God's permission. He needs God's permission to harm. Uh, Job 1, 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan basically says, well, it's just because of what you've given him. <coughs> but if you, if you let me take away everything, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and then you know what he did. He took away everything that... Uh, Job had all of his possessions, all of his children. The only thing he was left with was the wife that was um, not giving him very godly advice. Okay, then it happens again. Job 2, similar situation. Satan comes back. God says, well, look, have you considered Job? He's still holding fast to his integrity after you took everything. And then Satan says, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, that's because he still has his health. So then God allows Satan to take the health of Job away. Okay, so again, Satan's not, not able to do this without God allowing it. Uh, similarly, in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So you notice he says, Satan's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And God doesn't say, I'm not going to let him. Right? He doesn't say that. Peter would probably be like, why didn't you not, why did you let him, why didn't you tell him no? But, but God doesn't, but, but he doesn't say that. He says, he's, he's demanded and I've prayed that your faith may not fail. So he's saying, well, basically he's going to let him do that. He's going to let Satan put him through that, but he's going to pray and in, therefore ensure that Peter's faith does not fail as it did previously. 
And then what's the and then the good's going to come out of it. He's going to be faithful, and when he's turned, he's going to strengthen the brothers. So God's going to use this to strengthen Peter, and therefore strengthen the brothers. So he's going to allow this evil thing to happen and turn it to good. He's going to use it for good. In Matthew eight, the next subheader: demons couldn't even enter pigs without permission. Uh, you know that probably that's that scenario well, so I'm not going to go there. Um, but the point is they had to beg to be let into the pigs. He, Jesus allowed that. And then we see ultimately, and the passages from Revelation, we see ultimately God will do away with suffering and evil. So if you say that God can't get rid of evil and suffering, that it's, all, that it's sort of out of his control, well, he's going to get rid of it. So he is, he is sovereign over it all. Um, that's shown from the scripture. So, Through all of this, we conclude that God is sovereign over evil. God is all-powerful. 1 Timothy 6 declares that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's sovereign over all, including Satan, including the evil actions of evil beings, evil people, evil demons, uh, evil nations. He's sovereign over it all. As Martin Luther famously said, the devil is God's devil. As Sharnock writes, God manages Satan and his acts to glorify himself and to strengthen believers. And the demons are subordinate to serve God's providence in which God declares his wisdom by using his worst enemies in service to himself. So therefore we conclude God is good and God is all powerful. So let's come back then to the unbeliever's argument. I don't remember if I have it there again on your paper or if you have to go back to the very beginning. But go back to the unbeliever's argument that says, if God were all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. If he were all-good, he would desire to prevent evil. So if he were both of those things, there would be no evil. But there is evil. So God must not be all-powerful or he must not be all-good. That's their argument. Okay. So we've seen we can't conclude what the process theologians conclude. We can't say God is good but he's not powerful, and that's why evil exists. Okay? They're compromising the word of God when they say that, because that's not what the word of God teaches. So we can't, we can't agree with process theologians, because, because he is all-powerful. But he's also good, so there's something wrong with the argument. So let's look over the argument that the unbelievers give us. So something here has to be faulty. Certainly, premise number one is true. God could have prevented evil if he's all-powerful. Right? We would agree with that. God could have done that. This pre- but what about premise number two? This is the one that is not true. Okay? If God were all good, he would desire to prevent evil. Okay, why do I say that that's not true? Because we've just established that God is all-powerful, and we know that evil exists. <laughs> We, he's obviously allowed it, right? So that cannot be true. That is not true. It, so their, their, their assumption that if God were all good, he would desire to prevent evil is not true. That's where it breaks down. That is not a true assumption. Okay, first of all, it has a narrow definition of good. That's one thing we're going to see. Uh, but, but the point is, he's obviously allowed it. And so if you look at what's really going on, then the unbeliever's argument, as much as this premise one, premise two, premise three conclusion thing, makes it look fancy in terms of logic and whatnot, what it's really just saying, the unbeliever's argument is really no more than saying a good God would not allow evil. 
Okay, for all the fancy fixings around it, that's all it's really saying. It's claiming a good God would not allow evil. And we're saying, but he is a good God and he did allow evil. That's patently false. Okay, that is not true. They're making an assumption there that is not true. R.C. Sproul writes, ultimately, it must be good that there is evil or evil would not exist. God has a purpose for it and all his purposes are good. Even if we don't fully understand it, we can trust that it is good. Greg Bonson writes, any evil we find must be compatible with God's goodness. God has planned evil events for reasons which are morally commendable and good. God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. Okay, we certainly see this on the small individual scale throughout Scripture, right? We've looked at Joseph, for example. And Scripture promises that believers will suffer, but also promises that God uses those things, including suffering, for our good. And then, of course, there's the gospel. God allowed evil to be done to his only son so that many could be saved. He used the ultimate evil for good. Okay, but this, thing, this idea of questioning God's goodness has been Satan's ploy from the very beginning. If you go back to the fall in the garden and you, you look through in Genesis 3 what happened, the serpent came to Eve and he said, what did he say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? So he asks, he's questioning God's way. Did God actually say? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So he, first he questions God's word. Then in verse 4, the serpent said, you will not surely die. So now he's calling God a liar. He's flat out saying that God's lying. And then if you look at his explanation, look at what he does. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what he's saying is basically God is holding out on you. If you eat this, you're going to become like God. And he doesn't want you to get that. So he's holding you back. Basically, he's not good. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's hiding this thing and keeping it from you that you should have that would be good for you. God is not good. That's what, his, what he's doing. So he questions God's word. He calls God a liar. And then he says, God is not good. That's ultimately what he says. He gets... Uh, Eve to question the goodness of God. And that's what the unbeliever is doing here, questioning the goodness of God uh, based on the existence of evil. Okay, the person, if the person realizes that God is all powerful, we're talking about unbeliever here, if the unbeliever realizes that God is all powerful, then the person knows that he or she can never oppose God and win. It doesn't make any sense to oppose God when you know that he's all powerful. And so what Satan tries to do is encourage the rebel in us so that we say, basically, I don't care. I'd rather go to hell than follow God. I don't think he's good, so I'm going to take a moral stand as if I'm somehow better than God. And even if it means going to hell, that's basically what Satan tries to stir people up to do. That you're going to say, well, okay, if God's all powerful, I'll never win, but I'm not going to anyway. And it's, it's foolishness. It's futile and it's sad. Now, let's see where we can go. How can we answer this? So, so we're, we're obviously saying that what the unbeliever says is not true. But can we do a little more than that? You know, we're trying to 
we're trying to answer graciously, but we're trying to also answer, you know, what, as much as we can, what is the answer to the question? So, so, okay, the unbeliever argument isn't true. It's not valid. So we can come and we can respond to the person. Well, okay, but you're wrong about that. God is all-powerful and he has allowed evil and he is good. So your argument's wrong. But then they struggle with that. And even believers could struggle with that to some extent. So we want to kind of look at how, what can we answer? And the truth of the matter is the Bible does not give you a complete explanation. And you just have to be okay with that ultimately. You are not given a complete explanation of several things. Like how could a perfect creation, in a perfect creation, could Satan fall? That's never spelled out for us in scripture. That's something we have to wrestle with. And at some point we have to say, I don't know the answer. And I'm okay with that, because if God wanted me to know, he would tell me, and he hasn't. Okay, so that's one of the questions. And then the other question is, is, is the same thing. Well, why does God allow evil? But we have some answers um, that can help. So let's go through. Uh, here are some defenses that have been suggested, and some of these are partially helpful. Some of these are not. So there's a table in your handout. Uh, some of these I'm going to go really quickly over because they're not helpful, like the first one. The first one is to claim that, it's, that evil isn't actually real. Uh, evil's an illusion. So this, this is, we've been, we looked at a number of pantheistic religions in the apologetics class, and that was one of the things, is that when you have this pantheistic, the universe is God, God is everything, everything's God, there's no right and wrong, there's no morality, so there's no good and evil, really. It's all just an illusion. Well, that's not helpful and it's not true. Um, ultimately, then also, you sort of punt the question because then it's, well, how could God give us an, this terrible illusion of pain? So instead of saying, well, pain and suffering, it's the illusion of pain, but you're kind of punting the question. Why would God give this terrible illusion of it either? So that's not really a helpful uh, argument. Another defense is the best possible world defense. And I think this one's somewhat helpful. Uh, it says, God has made the best possible world, but certain evils are logically necessary to achieve certain good ends. For example, suffering must exist for there to be compassion for sufferers. Okay, but one argument against this is that God created the world without evil, and he'll set everything right one day without, any more, without evil. So does there have to be evil? Right? Why? Why did he allow evil? Another one is the free will defense. This is probably the most common one given. Uh, and it basically argues that God wanted to give us choice. So when he gives choice, evil becomes a risk that someone can choose to do evil. Okay, one of the arguments against this is that Scripture doesn't seem to teach free will in this sense. It still seems to point to God's sovereignty over everything. And this isn't really used in the scripture as a defense. People are responsible, but ultimately this isn't used as the, as the defense in scripture. Uh, another defense is character building, um, that suffering is necessary to mature believers, to mature people. Suffering and pain build character. Um, the argument against that is, well, some suffering and pain don't necessarily, right? They're, they're, and why do those exist? Um, there's another one, stable environment defense. Evil comes from breaking, the breaking of natural laws. God designed these laws and with consequences, and that's where evil comes from. But again, that doesn't seem to be how things originated, because everything was perfect in the original creation. Uh, the divine weakness defense we covered, which says God couldn't prevent it. That's not true. 
Uh, indirect cause defense. God does not tempt or do evil. We know that's true. So he is not the direct or immediate cause of evil. Those who are the direct cause are responsible. Uh, it doesn't really address why he allows evil. There's another one that says, uh, ex lex, God is outside of the law. He has the right to do many things that seem evil to us is the argument to this. But God isn't really separate from the law because the law is a reflection of who God is. So we can't really separate God from the law and say, well, he made this law and then he's, he's completely different from it and above and can do whatever. It's like, well, the law was reflecting who God is. And then there's the greater good defense. Uh, God has good reasons for allowing evil. And this ultimately, I would say, is the best argument. Out of such evils come greater goods that could not otherwise come. And so the... the Best argument is kind of the best possible world combined with a greater good defense. And what it has to do with is that God allows evil because of the good that comes out of it. That's why he's allowed it. And what is the good? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. So what can we conclude? Let's try to, let's try to summarize. What can we say? What can we actually conclude from Scripture about evil? Okay, so number one, God allows evil. That's the first thing we have. We know. God is good. God is all-powerful, and he's allowed evil. We saw that in Job. He allowed Satan to do evil things to Job. He allowed uh, his son to go through the crucifixion, right? And we know that he will judge evil and send all that is evil into the lake of fire eventually. So evil is allowed for a time for some specific purpose. And then eventually... It's going to be put away into the lake of fire forever. So it's, it's just for a certain amount of time with a certain purpose that he has. Number two, God does not tempt or make us do evil. Scripture is clear that we're responsible for the evil that we do, even if he uses it for good. And James 1 says, uh, 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's, it's not God who's tempting and causing us to sin. We can't blame God. And in fact, for the believer, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that he always provides a way out. There's always a way that we can, if we uh, walk with him, that we're not, we don't have to sin. Okay, uh, I'll leave the other verses there for you. Uh, those are basically showing that the unbeliever is a willing slave to sin who is responsible for his sin. Maybe I'll just mention John 3. Uh, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So those who are wicked, they reject and don't want to believe the truth. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans tells us. Uh, they love their sin. They love the darkness. Okay, so God allows evil. God does not tempt or make us do evil. We are responsible. Number three, God uses all things together for good. If you're a believer, we've already looked at those verses. Genesis 50, 20, Romans 8, 28, and 29. And then uh, Christ, Christ uh, dying in our place, Acts 2. Evil things were done, but God used them for good. All right, so now we come to kind of one, one of the answers to our question, the best answer we can give, I think. Number four, God's glory is the greatest good. 
Okay, so we mentioned earlier that when we look at the definition that the unbeliever gives about how God, a good God would not allow evil, a good God would not allow it, that has a different idea of what good is than what the Bible does. And the greatest good isn't that no one should suffer. The greatest good is that God should be glorified, ultimately, and the most. The greatest good is God. It's focused on God, not on man. So creation, history, and God's purposes should be seen with, not with man at the center, but God at the center, considering how God's creation and providence maximize his own glory. If you want to read a, a book, <laughs> you've got some time to read, all about this. There's a very, a very big, uh, thick book all about this topic. This guy, Scott Christensen, he argues a fallen but being redeemed world as we have is far better than an unfallen, not needing redemption world because God's greatest glory is found in Christ's work of redemption. So he argues God is glorified the most of all possibilities. God is glorified the most in the redemption through Christ. The re- and the redemption through Christ could only happen if the fall happened. So God is most glorified through evil happening and Christ redeeming his people. He argues that God's ultimate end in creation is to maximize the display of his glory to his creatures through the redemptive work of Christ. And the greatest good is what will bring God the greatest glory. Kent Hughes explains his own glory is his highest aim. Jonathan Edwards wrote, All that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. So when we look through the unbeliever's arguments, that premise number two, that's why this is not true. God is good, but the ultimate good is his glory. And that's his purposes for allowing evil. It's for his glory so that he would be glorified the most. That's the good. So objectives would define good as no one suffers or all get saved or something like that where there was never evil. But that's a man-centered definition. It turns out that God is glorified the most with those things happening. That's why he's allowed it. And if you think about that, if you go through scripture and you see that, yeah, what God does all for his glory ultimately, that has to be the answer. Right? We say, well, why does evil exist? Why, does any, why has anything happened that has happened? Why, does, why has God allowed anything that has happened? It's because ultimately all the things that happen the way they happen are what glorifies him. That's the reason for it. So that has to be the reason for evil. That is the reason. Because it glorifies him. Otherwise he wouldn't have allowed it. As Christensen writes, once God freely determined to create the world and to maximize his glory in his image-bearing creatures, there was no greater way to do so than through the redemption that comes through the atoning work of Christ. Therefore, this makes both the fall with its deleterious effects on God's good creation and God's redemptive work through Christ alone necessary aspects of his freely chosen glory-maximizing plan. God ordained the fall to this end. So it's for his glory. That's number four. Number five, God doesn't answer to us. And this is where we find in the scripture that he doesn't give us, you know, complete answers of how this could happen and exactly how this all works out. You know, we have what we've been able to conclude, but in the end, God doesn't feel the need 
to fully explain himself to us. And that's clear if you read through evil things in Scripture that have happened. So just to give you a, a, a quick overview of this, again, you can read more in either Christensen's books, so or there's a couple others. Uh, John, Frame's book on, uh, John Frame's book on apologetics is pretty good too. Um, so Frame puts it this way. He says, Scripture never assumes that God owes us an explanation for what he does. Uh, you remember in the garden, after Adam and Eve fell, Adam actually tried to blame God. You remember that? He says, it's that woman that you gave me. So he's blaming Eve, but actually he's blaming God because he says that you gave me. He doesn't say it's the woman. He says it's the woman that you gave me. So he's trying to say, well, it's your fault that I did evil. Right? He's trying to say it's God's fault. And God doesn't really answer to that. He, he, he pronounces the curse. But he doesn't answer Adam's accusation, right? It just comes and it goes. He doesn't answer that. He doesn't feel the need to respond to that accusation. Uh, As Frame observes, where did the serpent come from? If he was originally good with the rest of creation, how did he become evil? Why was he allowed into the garden to tempt Eve? Why did a good God foreordain this entire event to take place? If he foreordained the response of Adam and Eve, by what right does he punish them? All these questions naturally arise in the context, but the passage does not answer them. Indeed, when Adam, in effect, raises the problem of evil by blaming God for giving him the wife who tempted him, God offers no rationale for what he has done. Rather, he points out Adam's own wickedness, imposes a curse on him, and then leaves the scene. God declares in Exodus thirty-three nineteen. I read this one earlier, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay, God chooses by his own will. He doesn't, he doesn't owe an explanation to anyone. He chooses to whom he will be gracious and to whom he will show mercy. After Job suffers, Job spends a lot of time suffering and then writing about it and being confronted by his friends and basically gets to the point where he's essentially demanding that God come and, and he can have an audience with God and kind of have like a courtroom and you know, bring his accusations against God and have God respond, right? So, so he comes and he demands this audience to question God, but what in the end happens in the book of Job? Does God come and explain himself? He doesn't, right? And for Job, I'm sure that's not terribly satisfying, or for us as we read it, but again, that's, that's God's reaction. He doesn't owe us an explanation. And in fact, he says, who are you to ask? And you, you don't even understand all these things about the creation. How are you going to understand these, these really difficult things? Right? So, so God comes in Job 38, and he, and he asks Job all these questions. Right? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> so he's saying, yeah, you're speaking words without knowledge. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 4. And then he, he keeps going and he asks him these questions. Have you commanded the morning? Verse 12. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Verse 16. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Verse 22. And in the, in the end, God does vindicate Job, but he doesn't answer. He does not give an answer to these questions, right? As the MacArthur Study Bible explains, God asked Job if he was an as eternal, great, powerful, wise, and perfect as God. If not, Job would have been better off to be quiet and to trust him. So God does not sit in the witness stand to be questioned and judged by man. 
As Walter Kaiser writes, God will not allow himself to be put in the witness dock at the whim or pleasure of his creatures with demands that he justify his actions toward them. Mortals have no right to censure God or his ways, for as sovereign Lord, he moves in an altogether different plane, and he is accountable to no one but to himself. And God points out Job's ignorance here and his insignificance, basically saying, who are you? What do you know to question me? And Job has to admit that he's spoken out of turn in a presumptuous way, as Kaiser puts it, about things that are too wonderful for him and out of his depth altogether. Commentator Roy Zuck writes, if Job could not comprehend or control God's government in nature, how could he hope to comprehend or control the Lord's ways with man? And in the end, Job repents, right? And he says, Job 42.3b, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Right? That's what he says. He did not, so, so he didn't understand. And he basically says it's not my place to demand those answers. And he never really receives an explanation. And neither do we, as we're left to wonder. We know a little bit more than Job, because we, you know, we got the picture of what was going on with Satan and getting permission. So we, we know about that, but we didn't really get a full answer either. Uh, Frame writes, I don't believe it is sinful merely to pose questions, but when our questions take on the quality of accusations, when they express actual doubt of God's goodness, when we put ourselves in the proud position of demanding an answer, then we can expect a rebuke from God. Okay, there's another example. Uh, Ezekiel 18, uh, 25 to 30, uh, where God's talking about who's responsible for their sin, uh, that each person is responsible for his own sin. The fathers are responsible for their sin, sons for their sin. And if a, a wicked person can turn or a good person can fall, and, and in the end he's, he says, here's what Israel's saying, verse uh, 29 in Ezekiel 18. The house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. They're accusing him of being unjust. unjust. O house of Israel, are, not, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. So again, they're accusing him, and he's saying, no, it's you who is in sin. He's turning the table. He's not answering to that. He's saying, you're the ones who are in sin, and he's pointing to the judgment that they're going to face. Okay, same thing with, uh, with Adam, right? He didn't answer Adam's accusation. He said, you're the one who sinned. Here's the curse for your sin. Daniel Block comments, instead of charging Yahweh with capricious conduct, Israel should be looking in the mirror. Okay, another example, uh, Matthew 20. You know this, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? Just to, to kind of to, to summarize, um, this, the, the master hires people to work in the vineyard. He hires some at a certain time, and they come and work for a denarius. He hires some more a few hours later. They come and he pays, he agrees, they agree that he will pay them each one denarius. So everybody agrees to the same wage, but some end up working more than others, right? And then at the end, when the workers see that some people, that they're not going to receive more who worked more, then they have a negative reaction to that. So uh, Matthew twenty ten, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. 
Uh, so God chooses to pay the workers the same wages, even though some worked more than others. And then here's what they say. They accuse him of injustice because the master is, is the, in this picture is representing God. Uh, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. How does the master respond? Does he defend himself? Does he explain it? Not really. He just says, you agreed to that, right? I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Or am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So ultimately he's saying, I get to choose with what belongs to me. Right? He chooses whom he will have mercy on. Right? He has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. Uh, we could look at some more examples uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. So turn there if you would. We could start in Romans 3. John Frame explains, he kind of sets this up for us. Romans often takes the form of dialogue between Paul and imaginary or perhaps real objectors who raise the problem of evil in various ways. For example, in Romans 3.3, someone asks whether the unbelief of some Jews nullifies the faithfulness of God. Is God unjust to promise blessing to Israel and then to withhold from some the faith that is necessary to receive the blessing? Here is the problem of evil applied to one aspect of God's plan. Interestingly, Paul, like the previous writers that we have considered, does not sense any obligation to answer that question. Rather, he rebukes it as God rebuked Adam, Job, and the Israel of Ezekiel's time, and the landowner in Jesus' parable rebuked his complaining workers. Romans 3, 4, this is what Paul says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Frame notes that again we see the familiar themes, the complainers have charges uh, that they direct against him. God's word is vindicated, and God rejects the supposed obligation to explain himself. God's sovereign rights as judge are honored, and his character is vindicated. Uh, it's explained here, it says, uh, this is how John MacArthur explains it. Uh, he quotes, not MacArthur, sorry, Paul quotes from Psalm 51 there, and MacArthur summarizes here, uh, because God is perfect and is himself the measure of goodness and truth, his word is its own verification, his judgment its own justification. It is utter folly to suppose that the Lord of heaven and earth might not prevail against the sinful, perverted judgment that either man or Satan could make against him. Even if all were to be against God, they would be found liars and he would be found true. In the very next verse, Paul cites another objection, Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So he's summarizing their objections. This accusation suggests that maybe God is unrighteous to, just, to judge the wicked because their unrighteousness glorifies him. So if he uses their evil to glorify himself, is it wrong for him to punish them? That's what they're asking, right? They're, they're saying, implying that it is. How does Paul answer this? By no means. He just says, no, that's absolutely not true. For then how could God judge the world? 
He doesn't really answer the question, but he points to God's sovereign right as the judge. That God is going to judge, and he's the righteous judge. There's more objections in the next verse. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So this is an antinomian argument. If God is glorified through evil, why shouldn't I sin more? Because me sinning more is going to bring him more glory. And and lest you think this is so crazy that no one would possibly believe this, there's the old Russian monk Rasputin, who basically believed and taught this, uh, Rasputin, he taught and, and exemplified the, 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 uh, the doctrine of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. And he held that those who sin the most require the most forgiveness. So a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than an ordinary sinner. So basically he encouraged just live a life of sin. Live it out. Live it up. Sin as much as you can. And then when God forgives you, you receive even more grace and he gets even more glory. Like if that's a good thing. That's what he actually taught. Paul's response to this argument, does he defend God's right? Does he give an explanation? He just says their condemnation is just. They will be judged. God will judge. And then one more time, the issue comes up in Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9, 13 to 24. Romans 9, 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and here's that Exodus 33 passage, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. By the way, notice he's using the evil of Pharaoh for his glory, right? That's what he's saying there. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Okay, we don't have time to dive too deeply into this, but Frame summarizes it this way. He says, well, the question receives the usual answer, by no means, but why must we say that God is just in this connection? Because God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. In other words, God has the sovereign right to do what he wishes and no further explanation is necessary. Anyone who continues to accuse God is himself subject to the accusation that he's talking back to God like a clay pot that questions the purposes of the potter who made it. The potter is sovereign over the clay in both control and authority. So Romans confirms what we've seen elsewhere, that we have no right to complain against God and when we do, we expose ourselves as disobedient. And I would say as lacking in trust because that's what it's going to come down to. 
God is under no obligation to give us an intellectually satisfying answer to the problem of evil. He expects us to trust him in spite of that. And still, we do have some answers, right? We might not have an ultimately completely satisfying answer. Three, God's sovereignty is not to be questioned in connection with the problem of evil. Four, God's word is altogether reliable. And five, God is not unjust. He is holy, just, and good. Okay, so all of that to say, we see through the scriptures, this was point number five, that God doesn't answer to us. He doesn't have to answer to us. He doesn't answer to us. And then finally, as we just said there, number six, God expects us to trust him. That's what it comes down to. In the end, we don't have all of the answers about it. R.C. Sproul wrote, I do not know the solution to the problem of evil, nor do I know of anyone else who does. But we do know God's character, and ultimately, we must trust in that character. Because you see, even if we understand that he allowed evil for his glory, and that his glory is the greatest good, you could still be wrestling in your brain, like, how does that, how does that work that way? How can that be, right? It's, it's, so you still have, it's still not something we can fully comprehend, even if we have, have an answer to it. Uh, Bonson observes, the Bible calls upon us to trust that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which can be found in this world. The problem of evil comes down to the question of whether a person should have faith in God and his word or rather place faith in his own human thinking and values. Do you trust the God who created you, who sent his only son to die to save you, who is the standard of good and without whom good and evil make no sense? who has given you the ability to experience joy and pleasure, and who pours out his grace when we deserve nothing but his wrath. Can you trust that God? As Frame writes, the very nature of faith is to persevere despite unanswered questions. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find many times that the psalmist was plagued with questions and doubts and fears, and often his questions were left unanswered. But he would remind himself of God's character and of what God had done through history, his mighty works. And that would be enough. That would be enough for him to trust in God, even if he didn't get an answer to his questions. Now, I do want to point out one last important thing, which is that the problem of evil is just as much, and probably more so, a problem for an unbeliever. So the unbeliever who would level that question at you has a problem with that themselves. As Greg Bonson notes, there can be no problem of evil to press upon Christian believers unless one can legitimately assert the existence of evil in this world. So imagine an atheist. If you're an atheist, which is usually what we're talking about with an unbeliever, I mean, obviously unbelievers could be in other religions, but if, but if you're in one who's denying uh, denying God and denying, especially if you're going to question whether he exists, you probably believe in evolution and survival of the fittest, natural selection and so on, right? Well, in that philosophy, there's no morality. Where does right and wrong and good and evil come from in a worldview of evolution? We don't say it's wrong when the lion kills and eats the zebra. We don't say it's wrong when the stronger creature oppresses the weaker. We say it's survival of the fittest. And yet... You and I know that there are things that are right and wrong. And if you're an atheist, you would probably even agree that it's wrong for the Nazis to murder the Jews, for people to abuse and oppress others, and you'd probably argue that it's wrong for Christianity to be taught in the schools or prayer and so on, right? So there's there's these things that atheists would say, that's wrong. But then they're really contradicting their system. 
because there's no objective truth or morality in their system. It's just their opinion. And their opinion is no more valid than anyone else's. So why is their opinion any more correct than the opinion of Adolf Hitler or the opinion of a serial killer or anything else? It's similar if you're a pantheist. We saw this in Hinduism and Buddhism and New Ageism. If there is no personal God, there's no source of morality. There's no logical concept of sin. But again, everybody sees that there is evil. They know it, and they can't account for the knowledge of evil. John Frame writes, He, the unbeliever, has a more serious problem than the believer does. If the believer faces the problem of how there can be evil in a theistic world, the unbeliever faces the problem of how there can be either good or evil in a non-theistic world. By what standard does the unbeliever who denies God as the objective absolute standard, by what standard does the unbeliever declare anything as good or evil? The unbeliever can't simply say it's a matter of personal opinion. This is one way some people, at least at first, try to say the idea, explain their idea of good and evil, that it's an opinion. It's, a, it's what an individual thinks. Well, again, if it's just an opinion, then your opinion is no better than mine or any other horrible person from history. So no actions are any more wrong than others. If this is your view, there's truly no right and wrong. So you really shouldn't be calling anything good or evil. Obviously, that's nonsense, and it contradicts their consciences. The unbeliever, if they really stick to this, should have no concern at all about evil, just as we shouldn't really be concerned with lions killing zebras or hyenas that are oppressing weaker hyenas. None of that should matter. It just is. Okay, well, if you, if you get to that point, a lot of times the person will kind of come away from that, and they realize that doesn't really work. So here's another idea that you'll hear. Majority approval. What's good and evil? What's good and evil is what is determined by the majority opinion. Whatever the public approves of, whatever the majority favor, that's what's right. Does that make any sense? If the majority of Nazi Germany supported what they did to the Jews, are you going to say that that makes it right? <coughs> any time the majority of a committee or a jury makes a decision, then by definition it could never be wrong. Think about that. If you form a jury or you form a committee and the decision is based on the majority, then it's guaranteed that's never wrong because the majority is what is right. Does that make any sense? The majority can't always be right. The Supreme Court could never be wrong because it's a majority decision and the majority decides what's right. right? So who's to complain about any decisions? Uh, here's another example. Suppose you and I have two different opinions about something being right or wrong. So I bring my friend to you tomorrow and I outnumber you two to one now. So I'm right. But the next day you bring two of your friends and now you outnumber me. So now you're right. And so on. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? It makes no sense. So you can't go based on majority. Well, maybe the majority of all people. What does that even mean? Would you be finding all people in the United States? All adults? All people in North America? All people in the world? All people in the last century? All people throughout history? Are you going to poll them? <coughs> And what of the notions of cultural progress, right? Where, they, where the culture seems to think everything more recent is better than before. So are you going to count more recent better than before? I mean, how are you going to do this? It makes no sense. 
So individual approval doesn't work. Majority approval doesn't work. Uh, here's one other idea. Define good by the results. Good is what achieves the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people. That's what we, they would define. Greatest happiness by the great, uh, the greatest good is the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people. This is impossible to determine. As Bonson explains, one would need to be able to rate and compare happiness as well as to be able to calculate all the consequences of any given action or trait. This is simply impossible for finite minds, even with the help of computers. But more devastating is the observation that good may be taken to be whatever promotes general happiness only if it is antecedently the case that general happiness is itself good. In other words, who decides that general happiness is the greatest good? So if we define the greatest good by general happiness, who made that decision? Was that an individual? Was that a majority? Who made that decision? So you're, it's, it's, it's circular. Like, well, well, you have to figure out how you made that decision first. None of that works. And so we actually should be encouraged in the end when an unbeliever is upset about evil in the world, that should actually be an encouragement to us. When an unbeliever is upset about evil in the world, they're acknowledging that evil exists. And they may not even be able to wrap their brains around explaining how they know that evil exists because their system doesn't account for that. But they do see that evil exists and that gives us somewhere to start with them. They know evil exists, they know it's wrong, but they can't account for it in their worldview. Bonson again writes, the question is how the unbeliever can make sense of taking evil seriously, not simply as something inconvenient or unpleasant or contrary to his or her desires. What philosophy of value or morality can the unbeliever offer, which will render it meaningful to condemn some atrocity as objectively evil? The moral indignation which is expressed by unbelievers when they encounter the wicked things which transpire in this world does not comport with the theories of ethics which unbelievers espouse, theories which prove to be arbitrary or subjective or merely utilitarian or relativistic in character. On the unbeliever's worldview, there is no good reason for saying that anything is evil in nature, but only by personal choice or feeling. The unbeliever must secretly rely on the Christian worldview in order to make sense of his argument for the, from the existence of evil. The problem of evil is thus a logical problem for the unbeliever rather than the believer. As a Christian, I can make perfectly good sense out of my moral revulsion and condemnation of child abuse. The non-Christian cannot. We may not be able to explain exactly why and how God allowed evil in this world, but we can explain what evil is, how we can know it, and why we might have moral outrage about it. The unbeliever cannot. Bonson summarizes then, because they lack faith in God, they begin by arguing that evil is incompatible with the goodness and power of God. When they have presented, are presented with a logically adequate and biblically supported solution to the problem of evil, that God has a morally sufficient but undisclosed reason for, the, for evil existing, they refuse to accept it, again, because of their lack of faith in God. They would rather be left unable to give an account for, of any moral judgment whatsoever than to submit to the ultimate and unchallengeable moral authority of God. So in the end, we do not have all the answers about evil, but we can at least make sense of it and acknowledge its existence and we know that God is good and he is all-powerful, so he has allowed it for his glory. So it comes down to trusting God. Can we say with the psalmist from Psalm 131, 1 and 2, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. As James Montgomery Boyce explains about this psalm, what David is concerned about in this verse is not so much the accomplishment of great deeds, but rather peering into the hidden purposes of God, which is what the words great matters and things too wonderful for me usually refer to in the Bible. He is saying he has learned that he did not have to understand everything God was doing in his life or know when he would do it. All he really had to do was trust God. That's ultimately where we are. Can we accept what God does reveal about himself and his purposes? And then when we can't quite figure out the answers, trust him when he doesn't fully explain himself. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. Yeah. All right, sorry, I went a little bit over time. Let me close in prayer, and if you have any questions, um, I'll be here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we know your goodness as, as we have experienced it, Lord, as we have your word, and we know what you have done through history. We know what you are doing. Uh, Lord, we know that you are a good God. We also know from your word that you are all-powerful. And so the existence of evil is something that you have allowed, Lord, and it, it has to be for your glory because everything that you do is for your glory. And beyond that, some of the questions are still hard for us to answer. But Lord, may we just trust in you and may we uh, be able to answer in these ways to an unbeliever who might object, but not in, a, not in an arrogant way, but Lord, in, in a compassionate way, in a gentle way. Answer as best we can and then also show them uh, that, that them even, even believing that there is such a thing as evil reveals, that, reveals uh, the conscience that they have that you have given them. It reveals that there is, there is an objective good and evil, and you're the standard for objective good, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, for opening our eyes to the truth. We pray that you would just give us opportunities with those around us, Lord. And uh, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.